You may be seated. And please uh, meet me in James chapter 3. We will eventually make our way to Luke 19 as our primary passage. So if you want to find that as well. Luke chapter 3. Uh, almost to the end of the New Testament there uh, James is. James chapter 3. And we'll look uh, in a second at verse 13 through 18. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, today is Palm Sunday. It's uh, one of, those, one of those moments in church history that we reflect upon as Jesus continues through the Gospels to make his way to the cross and eventually to the resurrection, which we'll look at um, this week. Good Friday uh, is this Friday and then Easter Sunday. And this is sort of like that wake-up call for us, even at least in modern times, like, oh yeah, Easter is upon us. Uh, but for God's people in general, it's this story of Jesus entering into the city that he was, al he was always telling them he was going to die there. He was telling them that that's what he was going to do. And, and we call it Palm Sunday because the people who welcomed Jesus into the city that day all had palm branches and were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And for some of you perhaps who grew up in the church, maybe you saw some palm branches and maybe you even brought one today and you're just a little fearful of bringing it out because you're not sure if the only one's going to be waving that today. It's okay, safe place. We worship Jesus together in different ways, right? Um, but, they're, but they're waving this and saying Hosanna in the highest. Why? Because they believe that this is the one who's come to save them. It's an announcement and it's a, it's a calling of salvation. And it's an important moment for us, um, not simply because it marks Easter on the way, but all of the gospel writers commemorate this moment. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record Jesus coming into the city. They all see significance there. And they all connect this, this moment, this event with the Old Testament. So they're all explaining that this isn't just taking place, but this is taking place as a fulfillment of what, uh, has been promised, particularly what has been promised to God's people through the Messiah. And Jesus has been anticipating this, knowing and saying over and over again, like in places like Ma Matthew 16, that he was not only going to suffer, but he was going to die and in three days rise from the dead when he gets to Jerusalem. And yet when Jesus arrives, it's not just celebration. There's also some, some aggression, which, I mean, no matter where you land in Jesus' story in the, in the Gospels, you almost always see both. You see celebration and you also see animosity. There is a crowd who cries Hosanna, but there's also these religious leaders that say, y'all need to be quiet. That, that, that is too much celebration, too much worship, too much attention. And so really what we see today is this clash of power, these clashes of power that take place, two different kinds of power, two different ways of seeing the world. And that's what I'd like to talk about. And the gospel, or rather the, the apostle James, writes about this, these two different kinds of power through the language of wisdom. So look at James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who, who make peace. So there's, James says, a way from above and there's a way from below. And on Palm Sunday, I think what we are about to read is that these two clash, these two different ways of seeing the world. 
James is writing about it in more in a principled manner. And Luke, the gospel writer, is going to write about it experientially or biographically or recording of history. But Jesus and the Pharisees are not actually the only characters that we'll meet in Luke chapter 19. There's also this crowd. Luke says there are disciples gathered, and they are left to consider, as they watch all of this unfold, they are left to consider which power are we going to choose? Which power are we going to adopt and adapt to our lives? And I think that same choice is in front of us today. Which of these powers am I going to build my life upon? Which of these powers am I going to individually, and even as a church family, are we going to build our lives upon? Which power ought we choose? Or perhaps more to the point, I think when we're really honest, we go, I know which one is right. Like, because the power from above, James says, do it. So the, the real question for us is when we know that's the right one, why are we constantly tempted to choose the other one? Why are we constantly drawn to a power that's from below that is, in James' language, unspiritual and demonic. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about power. I want to talk about the two different kinds of power, gospel power and earthly power, the way from above and the way from below. And I want to consider how we understand power in general and why we are drawn to these false expressions of power and how it is that the the power of Jesus is the only one that is really true and the only one that brings and leads to lasting glory. And to do that all, we're going to need the Lord's help. So let's ask him together to help us know him and follow him today through his word. Heavenly Father, as always, left to ourselves, we may be able to figure out some things that are being communicated, but we will never understand the meaning behind the meaning of your word if it's not your spirit who teaches us. If, if it's not by your grace, by your power and goodness that you humble us so that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Because I think what we'll learn today is that fear and religion and morality, those things can change um, the outside, the way we behave. But only your love and only the gospel changes our hearts and who we are and, and what we believe and what we center our lives upon. And so I pray for myself, I pray for my friends, that today, perhaps in a very fresh way, that we would learn to build our lives in the kind of power that leads to your glory and our good. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So before we have a long discussion about power, we have to answer what exactly are we talking about when we talk about power. Uh, in the book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, something a book that has been incredibly instructive for me over the past couple of years, they explore the idea of the church, so the New Testament Jesus-loving people of God, today and how we have been redirected or re-guided by a false kind of power. And in that book, the authors define power as the capacity to affect reality, the capacity to affect reality. So maybe when we think about power, we think about it in a negative way, that it's a pejorative word, something that we shouldn't like look for at all. But it really, when it comes down to it, is the capacity to affect reality. And author Andy Crouch in his book, Strong and Weak, has a different, slightly different take on it. He says that authority or power is the capacity for meaningful action. And so in the spirit of all of these, I think, really helpful uh, perspectives, we'll consider power this way today, simply as that power is the capacity to do things. Power is the capacity to do things. It's neither good nor bad in and of itself, right? So we shouldn't look at power as positive. We shouldn't look at it as negative necessarily outside of context. Power is really the capacity to do things, and we are all able to do things. So in what spirit and what manner do we do? And again, on Palm Sunday, I think these two different ways of power, two different ideas of power collide with one another. 
They, they collide in their expectation and their understanding in particular over this person known as the Messiah or Messiah. The Messiah is a figure within Jewish imagination that is known as the anointed one of Israel, the one who is going to come to God's promised people as the promised hope, the one who was going to stick it to the Romans, to their oppressors. He was going to reinstate the people of God. He was going to defeat their enemies, be their eternal king. And Rabbi Nisan said that the coming Mashan or Messiah will completely restore all of God's purposes in creation. Yet throughout much of the earthly ministry of Jesus, if you follow with this story, you'll notice that Jesus is kind of playing coy with that title. When people say, oh, you must be him, or we're going to go tell everybody about you. He's like, Shh, keep it down. It's not ready yet. Let it simmer, right? We're always over eager to like, get out in front of God's plans, right? Um, and so Jesus is saying, hey, not, not just yet, not just yet. They see that he possesses this power, this identity, this even these works and these experiences that for them is saying, this is who he is. And yet the closer that Jesus gets to Jerusalem and therefore to his death, the more and more ready he is to make his identity known. And Palm Sunday is one of those like coming out parties, if you will. He's like, yes, this is who I am. We see it most vividly then in Luke chapter 19. So if you're still in James, turn to the left, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and if you get to John, go back to the left to Luke 19. 28 through 34 is where we'll begin to consider. Uh, Luke says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples, or two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, initially, what seems most impressive is that Jesus called his shot. He was like, here's what's going to happen. And then what, what does Luke say? It happened just as he told them. That's incredibly impressive. But many have pointed out that Jesus could have easily visited Bethphage earlier and made these necessary pre preparations, talked to the owner of the cult and just said, hey, some guys are going to come back here in a few days, right? And they're going to do this and, and they're going to say, hey, the Lord has need of it. That's how you'll know. It's in like a secret language that he's setting up ahead of time, right? So that uh, all of these arrangements could take place. So that may or may not have happened. Bethphage is only a couple of miles from Jerusalem. So easily Jesus could have visited that place previously. But what is uncontestable is the fact of what Jesus is saying through all of this. Because when we look at Zechariah 9.9, it is clear that Jesus has a message to communicate here about who he is. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus knows this. So even if Jesus makes the arrangements in advance, his message is still clear. In fact, it may even be more clear what he's trying to say. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you have been waiting for. And so a worship service begins to break out. Everybody gets really excited about this. And that's the second scene of this messianic theme. Look at Luke 19, verse 35. 
And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it, and he rode along. They spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So, Not only is Jesus pointing to the fact that I am the Messiah as he makes this connection with Zechariah 9, but the crowd is identifying. This is the Messiah. How do we know that? Psalm 118 is a messianic passage from the Old Testament which says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up up to the horns of the altar. So just like Jesus, the crowd knows the Hebrew Scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. They're connecting with that idea and they're bringing it into their present to make the statement that Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus says, I'm the long-awaited hope of Israel. The crowd is saying he is the long-awaited and anointed hope of Israel. But now there's this other group of people. Now we notice the response of the religious leaders, perhaps the ones that we would expect to be most jacked up that the Messiah is here. Not so much. Look at verse 39. Here comes the collision of power. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then Jesus answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, the Pharisees believed in Messiah, but they had already made up their minds through much of Luke's telling as well as the other gospel writers. They already made up their minds that Jesus is not him. Jesus is not the Messiah. So Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. The crowd is saying, he's the Messiah. And the Pharisees are saying, no, you are not. The Pharisees being one of the elite and governing, ruling religious authorities in Jesus' context. And so what do they demand? All the messianic celebration needs to stop. Rebuke your disciples. So in their rebuke of, or rather they rebuke Jesus to go and rebuke his disciples, right? So his rebuke is this thing they just want to pass down to everybody else. And this is a collision of power. Because how does Jesus respond? There are really something going on with these Pharisees. They're upset that all of this has taken place. And I think it's not only because of what we see in this text, but something else is in the back of their mind, which we'll visit in a minute. But suffice to say, they're not pleased. And so how does Jesus respond? He says, if these people stop worshiping him and announcing that he's the Messiah, then inanimate objects like rocks will start talking. will start shouting for joy and saying, this is the Messiah, right? So he's like, you you can shut my mouth, you can shut their mouth, and I'll create mouths on rocks. And they'll start saying that I'm the Messiah. Church, I hope you're picking up what Jesus is throwing down. You can't stop this. This is going to happen. I am the Messiah. And this is a collision of power. See, power is about doing things. Jesus is doing something, and now we see the Pharisees are doing something. Jesus has this power from above. The Pharisees reveal this power from below. Jesus is revealing his power through the fulfillment of God's ancient promises with this kind of cosmic authority that commands glory from rocks. And the Pharisees' power, a power from below, they're attempting to maintain control and superiority, and their own semblance of glory. This is why they wanted Jesus' followers to be quiet, because they were threatened. They were threatened. See, the Pharisees want 
Jesus to rebuke his disciples, and in doing so, they rebuke Jesus. Why? Because they feel rebuked by this whole thing. And they don't want to feel that way. So they, like Adam and Eve, our first parents in Genesis 1, all right, Genesis 3, rather, God comes and says, Adam, did you do this? He's like, my wife. And then God talks to Eve, and Eve's like, yo, the serpent, right? They're still doing the same thing. Jesus is saying, you've got this whole thing wrong. I am the Messiah. And they go, well, tell your disciples to be quiet. Somebody else's problem. There's a power from above and about a power from below, but both can't prevail. But why? This should strike us as a bit odd, especially if we're not familiar with the scriptures and familiar with these characters, the Pharisees or the religious leaders in general, because it would seem like, right, religious people would be really excited about worship. They, they like God, they like songs, they like the Bible, and here are a bunch of people who are singing, they're talking about God, and they're quoting the Bible. What, why get so frustrated as a religious person if all of these wonderful spiritual things are taking place? See, hearing the crowd, the religious leaders say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, they understand that the power from above is always a threat to the power from below. This is earthly power on full display. Notice that the Pharisees don't have a question. They're not curious. It's, it's accusative. It's entitled. It's based on fear and manipulation and control. Earthly power always feels threatened by Jesus. Th this may strike us as odd because I think we may be convinced that people like this would really appreciate this. But why wouldn't a bunch of these people be really excited? Well, because Jesus uh, they was not the Messiah that they expected, or probably not the Messiah they wanted. He is not the Messiah of, in other words, of their religious imagination, of what they expected him to be like. See, the kingdom Jesus is inaugurating is not a kingdom built on hubris and control and manipulation of power, the kind of thing that they were doing. He comes on a humble colt, colt not a steed. Through the power of Jesus, then, he, he not only has this authority, but he is also meek. And I hope every time you read about Jesus, you feel the tension of both of these things. He commands complete authority, and yet he comes in humility. And this is what was messing with the Pharisees. It messes with all religious people. Because we think that righteousness gives us entitlement. That doing the right things means that we get authority over people. And Jesus is saying, I have authority over people, and I'm going to humble myself before them. It's completely different. In other words, what does Jesus do? He weds power with love. And that always messes with religious people. Always, to this day. We build our lives on morals and of, out of being rewarded for our own righteousness. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is like loving people and extending grace and mercy. We get frustrated. Why? Because we're better than them. So we tell ourselves, they don't deserve that, I do. This is why they are threatened. This is why we are threatened. Because earthly power is rooted in fear. And Jesus' power is rooted where? In love. And the scriptures teach us that perfect love drives out fear and fear knows it. Fear always knows its days are numbered when love shows up. So power from below does things out of fear, and power from above does things out of love. Now, this might strike us as contrary, that, that love and power don't belong together. I would suggest to you it's because we almost always, when we think about power, are looking at earthly power. And it doesn't have love associated with it. But true power and true love are always brought together. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. lived and taught this paradox in his book, Where Do We Go From Here? He said, what is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive. 
and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. He's saying you've got to have both. We have a tendency to pull them apart and say, choose one or the other. And Dr. King and many in his wake say they've got to come together. Or in other words, in the words of James, Jesus' power is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. So when we think about power, we almost think, what is this person trying to gain for themselves? And Jesus shows us a kind of power of giving away power for the good of the other. It doesn't fit in our expectation. This is not the Messiah we would expected or would have chosen. In the previous chapter, Luke has been following Jesus. He's been following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And we see this kind of power unfold in the kingdom that Jesus is disclosing as he is coming to Jerusalem. Notice as we look back on chapter 18 in a couple of little spots, how Jesus' power, that power from above, is demonstrated through love all the way to Jerusalem. Luke 18, verse 15 through 17, Jesus famously welcomes a bunch of children into the conversation of spirituality. This was contrary to what the world expected about spiritual and really heady and important things. It was not for children. And Jesus says what? Let them come. For such is the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus elsewhere says, if you don't become like them, you're not in the kingdom either. Then we look and stop at verse 18 through 30 in Luke chapter 18. He turns away a rich young ruler who knows religion, who is religious, and who knows the moral law, but refuses to give up his wealth. And Jesus says, the kingdom's not for you either. And in fact, the man turns away sad, even though Jesus demonstrated love for him. Then we stop at verse 35 through 43. Again, Jesus still making his way to Jerusalem. Jesus heals a blind beggar who many thought was unclean and been judged by God. In fact, many people thought that sick people like him it was because they were unrighteous that they were sick this way. This is why they were befalled such tragedy, right? And Jesus responds to a simple question the man asks him. He just says, have mercy on me and I'll have my sight back. And Jesus gives him his sight. Not only that, we now get into chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And Jesus shares a meal with one of the lowest of the low in his society, in his city, in his town, a tax collector. Someone who took advantage of other people says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. If you remember the story, I'm coming to your house today. We're going to hang out. We're going to kick it. We're going to have a meal. And it made so many pious people really, really frustrated. Why? Because they'd worked their whole lives doing all the right things to earn that special meal with the rabbi, the young upcoming rabbi in the area, right? And now he's meeting with one of their enemies and they don't get it. Jesus proclaims even that salvation came to Zacchaeus' house that day. Not only so, we move into verses 11 through 27. Finally, Jesus tells a story, a parable, to instruct his listeners about that the kingdom will not come immediately like many people thought. So a lot of people thought that as soon as the Messiah comes, everything's going to be all right. No more challenges, no more suffering, no more pain. And Jesus is explaining that this is going to take a while. So what's happening? On Jesus' road to Jerusalem, he's revealing something about the nature of power and the nature of the kingdom. He's turning morality on its ear, if you will. He's reversing the powers of the world. In other words, people who are on the outside or on the margins or who were weak and sinful, Jesus is bringing them on the inside. And the people who thought they were on the inside, like that inner sanctum, the religious holy huddle people, he's like, no, in actuality, the strong and the rich and the outwardly holy are on the outside, right? What's Jesus saying? That Jesus' power gives away power to the weak. Jesus came to give his power out of love to those 
who are weak. This is why the Pharisees are so upset. And quite honestly, this is why we get upset. This is why he rattles us too. See, the Pharisees had constructed an entire religious world in which righteousness was measured by adherence to the law and compliance to mostly made-up rules. And Jesus wasn't having it. He wasn't going to fit in that box. He was not a people pleaser, right? He's like, oh, is this what you want me to do? Cool, I'll do it. Laying down his expectation and his fulfillment and simply just doing what they want. He wasn't fitting in their box. He wasn't honoring their kingdoms. And when Jesus doesn't honor our kingdoms, we get really upset. You know that? My counselor calls it the kingdom of I. And whenever Jesus does not affirm and like love the kingdom I've built for myself, I get kind of frustrated because I just want him to do what I want him to do. And if he doesn't do it, it gets really, really frustrating. He was building a kingdom in a different way with a different kind of power on messianic power, not on religious power, on the power that was from above, not the power from below, on love and not fear. And love, I think, is always an assault on fear's power. In particular, earthly power seeks to enact, I think, moral transformation through consequence and judgment. What I mean by that is that what James embodies um, in verses 14 and 15 back in chapter 3 of James writing. It says, jealousy and selfish ambition are in your heart. It boasts in false truth. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We see this in the Pharisees. They're not curious. They're presumptuous. They, they are proud and not humble. They even correct Jesus and give him orders. You ever corrected Jesus and given him orders? Here's what I need you to do this week for me. We also see this, I think, in our day and in, in our church and in our families. And Lord, help me. I, I truly see this in the way I often try to bring transformation to my children. Instead of showing love, I try to produce a semblance of fear in them so that they obey me, right? A lot of times, even throwing out consequences, I have no expectation I'm ever going to do because it would be harder on me. I'm just trying to use fear to create change and to provoke change. Many of us have bosses like this. Instead of demonstrating love and connecting with us at the level of humanity, they, they throw out threats to us. If you don't get this done, or you better get this done, we know what that feels like when fear is being used to transform our behavior. This is why we have such a, a, a bad association with power. This is often the only association we have with power, is fear. God, help us. See, the reason why this is ultimately doomed to failure is because fear and judgment can only change behavior. See, it actually works. Fear and judgment works for a while, but fear and judgment never hit the heart. How many of you were terrified of someone and the expectations of judgment they held on you that eventually you loved? Fear doesn't produce love. I'm just, I'm just scared of you. There's no relationship here. It's merely a transactional relationship. You throw out threats. I change my behavior so that you stay happy. And some of us have a view of God this way. That we look at the scriptures and go, this is a bunch of threats. This is a bunch of fear. This is a bunch of impending judgment. I better get my act together just to keep him happy. To keep the divine pleased with me. To keep him off my back. To give me blessing, right? We have a very fear-based relationship with God. And sometimes that's not our fault. That's what we saw in our parents. That's what we see in those in authority over us. Lord knows this is what we see in government and politics all the time. That fear is the thing that gets a quick transformation of behavior, but it never touches the heart. This is what the Pharisees built their life upon. 
Because imagine, there were a bunch of people there now singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and they're like, oh man, they're not going to tithe this week. We had been threatening them, and the Messiah is not going to come unless you put those, that money where it is, and the temple won't get built, right? And so now all of a sudden, in a very real and practical way, the, the, the use of fear to manipulate and to bring about and coerce a kind of behavior, now all of a sudden is threatened by what? Love. Fear always gets put on notice by love. Always. See, Jesus refuses to use, his, use the tools of fear and judgment. Fear and judgment change behavior, but fear and judgment never transform the heart, and it always leads to shame. Jesus uses, never uses these tools to manipulate people. Messianic power instead seeks to enact cosmic transformation through love and redemption. In fact, Jesus, why does he enter the city? Does he enter the city to judge it and condemn it? No, he comes to die for the city. He comes into that city to die. It's completely different. So on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is like welcoming children, tax collectors, beggars, blind people, like anyone and everyone who desires what? Love. Anyone who wants some love, Jesus is ready to love. It's like, these are my people. And he's going to Jerusalem to do one specific thing, not to use fear and judgment, but to lay down his one and only life. See, we are going to Jerusalem, Jesus said in chapter 18, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Messianic power doesn't threaten with fear doesn't threaten with judgment. Messianic power comes by way of love and sacrifice and self-giving. See, consequence and judgment, even when we find them in the Scriptures, they're not primarily instruments for change. They're the results of a life that has rejected love. Judgment comes upon those who reject the, the God who has loved us first, the God who first extends affection to us. Jesus explains this on the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Judgment comes not as God's first move towards a world, but as a world who is judging other people, rejecting love and choosing fear. See, earthly power, the power from below, uses fear and judgment. It always leads to judgment, more judgment. And we see this a lot in our world today. And I would dare say, because we are so quick in our cultural moment to judge each other, Love has this opportunity like never before to shine brightly. You love somebody right now, like with no strings attached, it has an impact like we have perhaps never seen because judgment is so such an easy thing to grab, grab hold of right now. My family, even in this neighborhood, in our school, we're seeing a kind of fruit through love that it's taken like six years in some respects, in some relationships. But Laura and I are just swapping these stories about this makes no sense. You know, this makes no sense. The fruit that the Lord is birthing simply out of just staying, remaining, loving, befriending, getting to know. And you know what? Real, this, real talk. This is what I have to confess. I don't trust that love can change people. I don't trust that it can. It just takes too much time, too much energy, right? We could just get people to do stuff by manipulating. Like, why? I just don't trust it. 
I don't trust it as a parent. I don't trust it as a neighbor. I don't trust it as a pastor as much as I should. It's too easy to grab a hold of something quick. And I think that's what the Pharisees did. And they were threatened by Jesus and his worshipers. And there's another reason that they're so afraid too. You see, one scholar explains they are afraid that the public applause given to the Savior will cause the severe Roman governor, Pilate, to take action against the people by force of arms. See, in an attempt to hold on to their religious power, what these Pharisees had been prone to do is to wed their religious power with political power. Does this sound familiar yet? And, and therefore, they didn't want like people to worship Jesus too loudly because the governing authorities would hear it and then they would come after them too. So they have created this world where they keep the political powers at bay, they control religious people with fear and judgment, and Jesus is coming and he's blowing all of that up. How? Through love. And so they're like, yo, keep it down. Pilate's going to hear and they're going to come with weapons. This is not going to be good. In, in other words, what are we learning? The Pharisees are using fear. Why? Because they're strong and brave and courageous? No, because they're more scared than anybody else. You follow fear long enough, and you will find that the person who is using fear is the one who is truly afraid. I know that's true in my heart. When I have tendencies with my children to use fear to manipulate, it's because I'm fearful. If people see them act in a fool, they'll think I'm a fool. If people hear them speak this way and get out of line, like, yeah, they shouldn't do that. But I'm also more fearful that it'll shine back on me. I'm the one who's afraid. You see, to claim that Jesus was Messiah was a claim that he was king. And in the day that Jesus was showing up, this was a violation of the social order. Caesar was king. Caesar was king. So when they come in and just say, Hosanna in the highest, what do they say? Blessed is the king. That's treason. So on top of violating all of the religious order, they're violating all the political and social order as well. Jesus takes no prisoners when it comes to power. When love shows up, every other kind of power gets put on notice. John actually recounts it this way when Pilate is talking uh, with uh, the Jews. Notice this, John 19 verse Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. That's Jesus. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Jesus' love is putting everybody on blast, right? And, and the religious leaders had wed themselves so closely with political power that they couldn't even divorce the two. And so everything feels threatened. So while the Pharisees are motivated in religious sense to keep Jesus and his followers quiet, they're also motivated in a political one. This is not going to help our cause. Caesar's the king. Let's bow to him. I think the complexity of their situation is really relatable today. They couldn't tell the difference between religious power and political power, and sometimes the church can't either. And so we as a people need to have a serious look, not just in the mirror, but in the word of God and say, what power am I really trusting in? Every election cycle, the church can get afraid that some social movement that we want to get behind is going to lose ground because we've all adopted this kind of Western idea that things are going to continue to progress and get better. The scriptures actually teach something different. Everybody's going to move more into the middle class. Everybody's going to have more of what they want. Everybody's going to move in this direction. By the way, it's not happening. Division is getting more severe. Poverty is a bigger issue today than it's ever been. 
racism, segregate, like all kinds of things are still befalling us. We're not moving into utopian society. I don't know if you've looked at Twitter recently. It's madness. It's madness. And so what does the church do in that? Get in that and speak louder and more boldly than anybody else with more judgment? We just footnote with verses. Why? Because Jesus is pleased by our anger as long as we say it came somewhere in James? No. What do we do? What is our instruction? Love people. Love people. We are a people who are not committed to making sure everyone knows that we are right. We are committed to make sure everyone knows that they are loved. It's a fundamentally different kind of power. I know this is true in my own heart. I'm so tempted to just jump in there because I'm like, I can outsmart you. I can outwit you. I can outyell you. But Jesus is like, I'll, just, I'll die for you. I'll love you. Today as Christians, I think we are often tempted like the Pharisees and drawn to the powers of something like the Oval Office and not the, the throne of heaven. Why? Well, to identify with the prevailing and cultural norms and the dominant power, it feels safe. It feels safe within a tribe of people of whatever political or social stripe to hide within that collection of people. Out of fear, we choose these wide roads of popularity and comfort and majority and then hurl insults across the aisles at one another. But the scriptures are really clear. Every wide road leads to destruction. There is this narrow way. There is this other power. It's not quick. It doesn't feel effective in the short term. It, it builds roots before it stems petals, right? And Jesus is clear. That he's coming into the city and saying, I'm Messiah. The crowd is clear. They're saying, this is the Messiah. But then fear collides with love. Fear shows up with its own instruments of shame and manipulation and judgment and scarcity and consequence. And so which are we going to choose? See, the religious leaders, they might kick you out of their synagogue. This is what God's people were probably wrestling with. Where do we choose? Where do we go? The Roman authorities might execute us for treason right alongside of Jesus. What happens? Well, the crowd that shouts Hosanna is the same crowd that very soon will shout crucify him. Think about that. The crowd that in one moment is saying, Hosanna in the highest, God save us, this is the Messiah, is soon saying crucify him, kill him. That's always what happens when we choose the power that's from below. Is as soon as it is not effective and advantageous for us, we flip. The one we venerate is the one we destroy. We too, I think, might shout amen on Sunday. Something really gets us excited, right? may not even be the amen type, but man, that was on point. Hallelujah. We might shout some different things through the week though, don't we? Different setting, different context, different pressure, different power. In fact, spiritually speaking, let's not distance ourselves. We all have screamed, crucify him. See, in our sin, we've chosen an earthly power, the power from below. And so the question for us is not just how are we going to respond, but how does Jesus first respond to us? Look at verse 41. Don't miss this. Jesus knows this crowd's about to change. Jesus knows that the Pharisees have chosen a particular kind of power. He knows that the shouts of Hosanna are about to be shouts of crucify him. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. 
Jesus weeps. He, he doesn't take up arms out of self-protection. He doesn't start shouting back at people. He doesn't say, you're all saying Hosanna and starts like criticizing and judging them. What does he do? He weeps. Church, if we're not weeping right now, we're, we're, our eyes are closed. We're not paying attention. He weeps over their choice of power. He weeps over their rejection of love. In other words, when we choose power through fear, Jesus still chooses power through love. This is why he's glorious. This is why he's amazing. Because when I start shouting other things and trusting other things, I, I then reach for shame and just go, oh, I'm so lowly. I'm so, I'm so bad, right? Even right now, I'm thinking, oh, I do choose power a lot. I do use fear. I do use judgment. What is Jesus' response to that? I still have an invitation for you to choose love. He, he weeps for us. Still then, he doesn't judge and criticize and, and put us to shame. What does he do? He weeps for us. This is glorious love. This is real power. This is a kind of power that breaks the cycle of earthly power because Jesus' kind of power is the only kind of power that will ever love you and ever weep for you. Whatever power we trust in this age, it never loves us back. It only takes, it does not give. Jesus has a kind of power that restores power to you, restores dignity, restores value and meaning through his very image, and restores love by giving you a new heart like his. It will be costly. It will be challenging, but it will be a power with love. This is good news for us. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. As left to ourselves, we shout Hosanna one minute and crucify him the next. Left to ourselves, we choose a power from below and not a power from above. We choose a power that has instruments of fear and judgment and not a power that loves as God in Christ has loved us. Forgive us for thinking the power from below is more effective and it leads to the kinds of ends that we desire. Help us to be a people of love even when it's hard. Especially when it's hard. When maybe all we have is tears and lament and sorrow and mourning. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.